Thirty years ago, Joseph Malouf ruptured a disc in his lower back. He was an HVAC installer, so he had to lift a lot of heavy things, like cast iron boilers. I had it surgically fixed, but I was never the same after that. My back never really regained its vertical posture, and uh, which was no problem. I didn't mind. Uh, I didn't notice it. People would sometimes comment on it, but it was just normal for me. When he stands up straight, Malouf is just over six feet tall. But for a long time, he couldn't stand up straight. And eventually, he did start to notice it. The pain was just too great to ignore. To ease the pain, he leaned forward as if he were scanning the ground for a lost contact. I bought a couple of those things you see on TV, uh, back braces and whatnot, which helped me to walk a little bit straighter. But the more I tried to straighten out my spine, the more it hurt. Joseph Malouf lives alone in Conway. He's 66 years old. He says for years he had to endure Quasimodo jokes from his friends, and he'd constantly walk into stuff. He served a couple of years in the Army in the early 1970s, service that qualified him for care at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And because he lived in Conway, that meant care at the Manchester VA. Doctors or practitioners would often ask me, uh, how long have you been working like that? They would just ask me, what pain level are you in? And I would tell them. Normally, I would probably say something like uh, uh, seven or eight, and I would tell them I'd be in no pain if it wasn't for my back. But Malouf says most of the time, he wasn't at the VA for his back. He had cancer in his mouth, and they removed part of his tongue. He's also been treated for depression. All this is to say, both for Malouf and his doctors, his back was something to worry about later. Years passed. And then one day, he was at the Manchester VA when he ran into another VA doctor. He was a new guy, a kind of pain doctor called a physiatrist by the name of Ed Coyce. He asked me, how long have you been walking like that? And I told him, he said, you know, you better see somebody about that because uh, you're going to end up walking like that for the rest of your life. Coyce offered to help. The VA sends vets to private sector doctors all the time, and the Manchester VA doesn't do back surgery. So Coyce tried to get the VA to pay for Malouf's surgery at New England Baptist. It took more than three months, but Malouf got his surgery. It involved going in through the back first, and then a week later going in through the front, my uh, stomach area. And the surgery worked. After years of pain, boom, no pain. If Malouf hadn't run into Dr. Coyce, for how long would he have suffered? And why didn't the VA fix this sooner? How could a guy who walks into stuff because he can't look straight ahead, a guy whose doctors knew he was in pain, not get more attention? I wasn't jumping up and down at the VA. I wasn't the squeaky wheel. I wasn't uh, conveying to them the level of my pain directly related to my spine. But honestly, if I had jumped up and down and complained more, I don't think the VA would have ignored me. So Joseph Malouf doesn't blame the VA for dropping the ball here. But Dr. Ed Coyce does. Coyce came to the VA after nearly three decades in private practice in Nashua. He wanted to give back to the veteran population. He says in private practice, most spinal cord injuries he saw were from car accidents, falls, or gunshot wounds. And my assumption was is that that would be similar in the VA. 
And, uh, but it wasn't. What, what I found was is that I was started to see a lot of people who had an acquired spinal injury because of basically non-treatment. He started keeping a list of patients like Joseph Maloof, patients whose doctors could have intervened to stop the progression of a preventable disease but didn't. There was a young man who had a screw drilled into his nerve. And there was a veteran in his 80s who lost the ability to speak and hold his bladder because of a tumor in his neck. Coyce had never seen anything like this in private practice. But lo and behold, when I got to the VA, I had this whole ward of them. This is Word of Mouth. I'm Peter Biello. Two years ago, Ed Coyce and other VA employees blew the whistle on what they called bad care for veterans at the Manchester VA, kicking off a scandal that made national news. Today on the program, we're taking a look at what happened in New Hampshire's only VA medical center after the scandal. What changed? And did those changes actually address the VA's problems? And to get there, we're going to hear from the whistleblowers who wanted change and the VA administrators, some of whom have not spoken publicly in two years. First, a few things you should know about the VA. The VA is one of the largest healthcare systems in the country. U.S. military veterans, with some exceptions, have an option for free or nearly free health care in the VA, a kind of socialized medicine just for them. Nine million veterans use the VA each year. The Manchester VA is one of 170 VA hospitals and medical centers across the country. And compared to most other VAs, the Manchester VA is pretty small. It offers the basics in primary care, pain management, mental health, women's health, and simple outpatient surgeries, things that don't require an overnight stay. So back to that key question. How did a whole ward of patients like Joseph Maloof end up at the Manchester VA? The answer? We don't know for sure. Dr. Coyce had a list of more than 90 patients with various spine conditions who were seen by different doctors over more than a decade. Whatever was happening wasn't simply one bad doctor or a misunderstanding of a particular ailment. Something about the whole system was amiss. Coyce went to work reversing as much damage to these patients as he could. That often involved sending patients to private hospitals like New England Baptist. And over time, patients that weren't too far gone got better. We were happier and the patients were happier and we had really good results. But like with every story, sometimes there's not a happy ending. And Dr. Coyce may have never blown the whistle if two things hadn't happened. The first of those things happened in 2014 in Phoenix, Arizona. It was a plan by top management at this veterans hospital in Phoenix, Arizona to hide as many as 1,600 veterans, waiting many months just to get a doctor's appointment. In April 2014, CNN first reported that patients were allegedly dying while waiting for months for appointments at the Phoenix VA. We've heard as many as 40 veterans here in Arizona, in the Phoenix area, could have died waiting for care. That's correct. The, the number's actually higher. The VA denied that anyone died for lack of care, but the story turned up political pressure on Congress to do something. And that something was the Veterans Access, Choice, and Accountability Act, better known as Veterans Choice. It was arguably President Barack Obama's most significant VA reform. And this is particularly important for veterans who are in more remote areas, in rural areas. If you live more than 40 miles from a VA facility, or if VA doctors can't see you within a reasonable amount of time, 
you'll have the chance to see a doctor outside the VA system. The goal of the program was to cut down wait times by providing the VA with more money to send veterans to the private sector. But Veterans Choice was problematic from the start. Many doctors didn't like it. Patients found the process confusing. Vets would be sent to the wrong place. Authorization forms would go missing. A variety of other factors made a mess of the whole Vets Choice system. And Coyce had another problem with Vets Choice, the Manchester VA's new chief of staff, Jim Schlosser. Like all chiefs of staff in the VA system, Schlosser was in charge of authorizing the most cost-effective way to get veterans appropriate care. He started in 2015, when Vets Choice was brand new. And right around that time, they also developed budgetary constraints. And um, that's where the problems began, because to cure the budgetary issues, they said, no, we would have to send everybody to Boston or to a new program that had come out called Vets Choice. Coyce did not like Veterans Choice. He also didn't like sending patients to the Boston VA, which he thought was providing bad care. For example, he says the Boston VA screwed up Joseph Maloof's x-rays, essentially masking the problem with his spine. The VA had another way, though, to send veterans to private hospitals outside of Veterans Choice. It's a separate line item in the VA's budget. That's how Joseph Maloof got his surgery. Coyce pleaded with Schlosser to let him send patients using that system. After butting heads with Dr. Schlosser a couple times, I was in a position where I had people with serious injuries who I was not adequately having them taken care of, but he didn't really care. He made it clear that I needed to use his hierarchy, which was either Boston or Vets Choice or none at all. Coy says Schlosser did say yes to sending patients to places like New England Baptist a few times, but only after Coyce put up a fight. It, it was sort of a rough and rocky relationship, and what I didn't realize at the time is, is he was having a rough and rocky relationship with multiple physicians. And I think that uh, this was sort of the genesis of the, what, what eventually happened. So those two things, the poorly functioning Veterans Choice Program and a chief of staff who forced him to use it, left Coyce feeling frustrated. Coyce was used to private practice. If he thought a patient needed a referral somewhere, he made the referral. No red tape. But now everything seemed thoroughly wrapped in it. To Coyce, it seemed like the VA cared more about conserving resources than giving vets what they needed. So Coyce talked to the people nearby, other doctors who shared his hallway. He asked what they thought of Schlosser and what they thought in general about the care the VA was providing. He calls these gripe sessions. We would use the F word quite a bit <laughs> in a variety of ways. That, that word is very versatile and has a variety of connotations. But we seemed to use that a lot and basically thought that things were messed up and that patient care was, uh, was not what it should be. Coy says this was when the walls between departments came down. For the first time, he began to hear about what other doctors were dealing with on a daily basis. For example, a nurse anesthetist didn't have basic equipment to sedate patients safely. Administrators couldn't seem to find the money to install a new nuclear camera. And then there were the operating rooms, which were frequently closed because of a recurring fly infestation. So again, imagine you're Dr. Coyce and you spent decades in private practice. If you need a piece of equipment to serve the patient better, you just bought it. To Dr. Coyce, it was bonkers that the VA administrators either couldn't or wouldn't do the same thing. And they'd get raises because their metrics are all looking good. And we still got flies in the OR. 
So Coyce took his complaints to New Hampshire's congressional delegation. He thought, maybe if important people outside the Manchester VA bubble saw what was happening, they'd force big changes. He really wanted someone to turn back the clock to the pre-Vets Choice, pre-Schlosser era. If that meant firing him and Danielle Ocker, medical center director, so be it. That didn't happen. Instead, this kicked off an investigation by the VA's Office of Medical Inspector, the OMI, whose job it is to investigate these disputes. And from the start, Coy says the investigative process seemed designed to find the VA blameless. Uh, they didn't even invite me to the initial uh, investigation. I actually forced myself on them. Uh, because I wasn't on the list of people to interview, even though I was the one that started the whole process. In the end, the OMI found no fault with the VA. Coyce calls the whole thing a cover-up, and here's why. The OMI relied on an examination of patient charts to figure out what went wrong. Coyce says those charts were unreliable. One doctor at the Manchester VA had been reprimanded for copy and pasting patient notes for years. Now, if you're not in the medical field, you may not know that doctors copy and paste notes all the time. That in itself isn't wrong. But the way this doctor did it earned him a reprimand from the VA. To make matters worse, Coyce wasn't sure the OMI investigators even looked at all the charts. At the time, Coyce had a list of 96 patients. Of those 96 patients... They wrote reports on two of them and then said, and we've looked at the other 94 but they provided no data that they had looked at the other 94. So complaining through the state's congressional delegation changed nothing. It did make his relationship with Chief of Staff Jim Schlosser even worse. Coyce says Schlosser retaliated by trying to remove him from the spinal cord clinic, the clinic he ran. Coyce held on to his job, but the attempt shook him. He was worried about whether he'd be able to stay on. He worried for his patients. So when Coyce got a call from the Boston Globe on a tip from another would-be whistleblower, he started talking. He says he had numerous, probably hundreds of calls. And as the weeks and months ticked by, Coyce says all the whistleblowers lived in fear of retaliation. Then, in mid-June 2017, Boston Globe reporters interviewed Schlosser and Medical Center Director Danielle Ocker. They came up and talked to the hospital. And we thought the story would be like the next week, but it was really like four or five weeks after that. Finally, on July 15th, 2017, the Globe's Spotlight team published its report. The headline? At a four-star veterans hospital, care gets worse and worse. Within 48 hours, the whistleblower's first wish was granted. Then VA Secretary David Shulkin removed Chief of Staff Jim Schlosser and Medical Center Director Danielle Ocker from their positions. They weren't fired, just reassigned to other VA jobs. But to Coyce and other whistleblowers, it was better than nothing. Shulkin also ordered a top-to-bottom investigation into all the allegations, which gave Coyce and other whistleblowers hope that more change was coming. I know this sounds strange, but it's like flying. Um, I learned how to fly on a dirt strip, and one of the things you, you learn is you always want to have the horizon. You want to, to orient where you are. And when you lose the horizon, like if you go into a cloud or it becomes dark, that's when flying gets very difficult and you have to use your instruments. And sometimes you have to fly completely by your instruments. Now, if your instruments are accurate, you can do that. But if the instruments are not accurate and you've lost the horizon, you crash or you have problems. The metrics are very similar to your instruments. If you have accurate metrics, then you can fly without seeing the horizon. 
And I think what happened with Schlosser and with Ochre and RVA is that they lost sight of the horizon. And they were flying by metrics that they thought they were doing a good job. We had four stars, but we were providing bad care. Kois and several other whistleblowers now spoke to every media outlet they could. And if you read news reports from back then, you'd get the impression that the VA system was poised for meaningful change. But was change really coming? Or just the appearance of change? That's coming up after a break. Stay with us. This is Word of Mouth. I'm Peter Biello. And today, we're looking at how whistleblowers at the Manchester VA attempted to change one of the federal government's largest bureaucracies. These whistleblowers wanted, among other things, new leaders. On this count, the whistleblowers got what they wanted. But to what extent did that fix the problem? And how did the VA respond to the accusations? Good afternoon, everybody. Um, And welcome to the medical center here. My name is David Shulkin, the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, and I'm pleased to be up here. Two weeks after the Boston Globe story, Shulkin came to the Manchester VA. While speaking at a press conference, surrounded by New Hampshire's congressional delegation, Shulkin announced more money was on the way. He said investigators would look into whether Manchester VA leaders made mistakes. I do want to make sure that I thank the... uh, prior director, chief of staff, and and nurse leader here. Uh, We have not found that there has been uh, anything wrong that they have done. These are good, dedicated professionals who came to help veterans. But there are times in organization, and this is my call, that we do need new leadership teams, and I want to find... Why, if these people are good, dedicated professionals, and there's not any evidence yet that they did anything wrong, did the VA throw them out? My name is Carol Williams, and uh, my position at the VA was the Associate Director for Patient and Nursing Services, alias uh, Nurse Executive. Carol Williams is the nurse leader Shulkin mentioned, and on the day of his visit, she was scheduled to meet him. I even went out and bought a new outfit. (laughs) It's nice to have the secretary come and visit, and I've met several secretaries in the past, and this would have been the first time uh, Secretary Shulkin was going to be to the VA, not for good reasons. Shulkin's flight was delayed, so that morning he took a call with the remaining VA leaders, including Williams. So we're on the phone, and he asked some questions um, about progress that had been made and some of the issues that um, had been addressed in the media. And into the conversation, he asked that myself, the acting chief of staff, and the uh, associate director step out so that he could stay on the phone with the network director and the acting director of the medical center. So um, we stepped out. 
And probably about 15 or 20 minutes after that, the acting director came into my office and said he needed to meet with me, and my heart sunk. Things had already been tough for Williams. A few days after the Globe story came out, a pipe burst above the top floor of the main building at the Manchester VA. Water destroyed 70,000 square feet of medical and office space. Williams was working 12-hour days trying to manage the flood when she was called into the acting director's office. And I went into his office and uh, was told um, right up front that there was a discussion with the secretary and they thought it was best that I be removed from my position. And there was no reason. There was no cause. Williams could not think of a single policy she had violated. In her view, she had always followed VA protocol. But in the weeks between the Boston Globe article and the day of Shulkin's visit, whistleblowers had told investigators that Carol Williams exercised a, quote, unusual amount of decision-making authority and that she should be removed, too. Like Jim Schlosser and Danielle Ocker, she became a target. So I thought I'll just bow out quietly and... um I just need a minute. And take my memories with me. So for all, it was an awesome career. After 30 years of working for the VA, rather than be reassigned elsewhere, Carol Williams decided to retire. By this point, the whistleblower's complaints had successfully prompted the removal of three Manchester VA leaders. To the casual news consumer, it seemed like the VA was cleaning house and fixing the problem. But it's hard to fix the problem if there's no agreement on what the problems really are. The whistleblowers had one view, the ousted leaders had another. For that perspective, I spoke to the man at the center of most of Dr. Coyce's complaints, former chief of staff Jim Schlosser. Were things as bad as they seemed in the press? They were not as bad as they seemed in the press. Some of the concerns raised by the whistleblowers were quite appropriate and thoughtful and really came from a commitment to quality patient care. Um, But the way it was framed in the Boston Globe was really uh, inexact, inappropriate. Schlosser says he and the entire leadership team were steadily working on all the issues described in the Boston Globe. Take the flies in the operating room, for example. We'd been working on for a number of years. We'd had expert entomologists, people from both the VA central office and private contractors working on that. We had closed one OR because it had some concerns. We were committed to protecting patients. No uh, surgeries were delayed or canceled. No patients were harmed. Our surgical infection rate was zero, in fact. And so to give the impression that the place was rampant with flies or dirt or something like that is just really inaccurate. Okay, so the flies thing is gross. Nobody denies that. But how do you explain flies in an operating room in a way that makes sense? I talked to some folks at the VA, and they said, look, operating rooms have doors. Flies are going to get in. And the Manchester VA is an old building built in the late 1940s. It is hard to seal up all the nooks and crannies. What's important is the process for dealing with it. 
you hire an exterminator. And after that, if you see a fly, shut down the OR and sterilize everything. Maybe hire another exterminator and try again. The VA did all that. That was just one of the problems. There were many others that Schlosser was not personally responsible for. But he was directly accused of prioritizing the budget over patient care. You would at times tell either a veteran or the veteran's doctor or both, no, we're not going to do it that way because we can do it in a more cost-effective manner. Right. That was one of my responsibilities was to review requests for care and make decisions. There is, and we communicated this a number of times when it was appropriate, there's a clinical appeals process that if a veteran feels that a a clinical uh, care has been denied that they think is adequate, they can appeal that. And so veterans who are unhappy, I always let them know that if you aren't happy with this decision, you're welcome to use the clinical appeals process and have someone else review this to see if it's the right decision. About how often did veterans do that? Veterans chose not to do that. I think at like, least... Like at all, ever? Like what percentage would you say? Very few. It was very rare. I mean, most veterans came to terms with the decision and worked with us. Some veterans were not interested in um, appealing. They were interested in in protesting. You know, they would much rather go to the to the press to make an issue about a, dis, a care decision rather than try to get what they get a clinical appeal to approve or overrule a local decision. Jim Schlosser says veterans sometimes were offered the opportunity to see doctors in locations they didn't prefer. But he says he never gave a patient less than they deserved, not for cost or any other reason. And I would say, you need the care, you deserve the care, let's get it where we can serve you best within the VA. He declined to say anything about Dr. Coyce or about the 90-plus patients on the list he kept. But nobody, including Schlosser, denies that it took a long time to make very little, if any, progress on these issues. I think the whistleblower's intention to to open up issues of concern is appropriate and, and can be constructive. So did they have a point? Yeah, I mean, they're frustrated because this is taking months. I mean... Should it take months? Should a system that enables problems like this to go on for months be allowed to stand in the way it is? Or does it need to be blown up and reconstructed? And are whistleblowers the right way to do that? So it's one way to make change. Is it the best way? Is it the most effective? Is it the best service to the veterans and our citizens who fund the enterprise to manage a system in that way? I think a more progressive or uh, constructive approach is to make sure that there's voice for concerns, whether from veterans and their families or from staff of various levels, so that their concerns can be brought to light, can be evaluated and acted on as judiciously as possible, as as effectively as possible, and because it's a big system and we can't change everything at once and, you know, we only have so much. We... Congress allocates funds, and we are tasked to use them as effectively as we can. Schlosser's argument boils down to a simple idea. The Manchester VA administrators were doing the best they could with limited resources and VA regulations they were in some cases bound by law to follow. I talked to several current and former VA employees, and many of them told me some version of this, that the VA has rules, and if you don't follow them, you could lose your job. 
The portrait painted for me here seems to be one of leaders doing what any responsible person would have done, given the VA's guidelines on how to do business. This hearing will come to order. Welcome to all who came out uh, this morning in the... Uh... In September 2017, two months after the Boston Globe report, a congressional field hearing was held in Pembroke. Around this time, the whistleblower's focus shifted from identifying deficiencies and practices to targeting individuals they thought would prevent meaningful change. The Boston Globe article gave them a microphone, and now they were using it to talk about leadership on a regional level, specifically Dr. Michael Mayo-Smith. He was the leader of all New England VAs, including Manchester, and he was asked about whether he knew of these problems before the Globe wrote about them. They did bring, uh, there were a large number of issues raised in the Boston Globe report. And some of them I was aware of uh, before, and others I had not been aware of until they were brought up by the Boston Globe. And uh, we, again, as I said, um, we appreciate uh, what the whistleblowers uh, brought up, and we have a... After the Globe article, whistleblowers now turned their critical eye on him. Ed Coyce and other whistleblowers said he knew about the problems, but did nothing to solve them. He was, in their view, just like Schlosser and Acker, except far more powerful. At this hearing, Mayo Smith praised the whistleblowers. When he pushed back, it was gentle. He didn't argue. And there was a reason for that. There was sort of a gag order. We weren't allowed to speak to the press directly. It was being handled in Washington. And uh, there was very much a, uh, a feeling of um, not um, being adversarial with the whistleblowers. So that was the uh, direction that was taken at the hearing. And in the months following the hearing, whistleblowers railed against him in the press. He never fought back. Eventually, like Carol Williams, he was pressed into retirement. That's when he decided to talk to me. I think the actual patient uh, concerns uh, could have been addressed uh, very uh, thoroughly uh, without uh, these, uh, in some cases, which were very personal attacks against a number of people. Imagine for a moment you're in Mayo Smith's shoes. You oversee VA hospitals in six states. That's four million outpatient visits per year. Manchester makes up 5% of that. To manage the whole regional system, he had to take a broader view. Issues in Manchester, he says, needed to be managed in Manchester. But whistleblowers used their microphone to say he should have stepped in. Political pressure mounted. I think the VA is a very political organization, and when you're in a senior leadership or uh, position within the VA, unfortunately, you're going to get caught up in um, some of the swirls uh, around uh, political issues. Uh, but I think that it's unfortunate. So were leaders acting with indifference to patient care? Those leaders who spoke to me said, of course not. Mayo Smith agrees with Jim Schlosser. They were doing the best they could with limited resources. And remember those investigations Secretary Shulkin promised? And let me uh, read their summary of this. There were two investigations. Months after Mayo Smith was forced into retirement, someone leaked the first one. The medical center director and chief of staff were extremely engaged, transparent, and supportive of exploring options to further develop programs. All signs of their commitment to open communication and psychological safety to ensure veterans receive the highest quality of care. Really, I view it as a complete exoneration of the local leadership in terms of the allegations that were brought against them. 
the VA has declined my request to talk about the investigation. Months later, the second report came out. This one was written by the Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection, and it focused on leadership performance. It found no fault with Danielle Ocker, Jim Schlosser, or Carol Williams. Dr. Mayo Smith says the VA did this backwards. Whistleblowers called for leaders to be thrown out, and under political pressure, the VA did just that, in most cases, before the investigations had even started. In the military, it's a pretty standard procedure. If you have a senior leader and there's allegations, they take them out of the position of command and, and, and complete an investigation and then make a decision about putting them back in or not. Uh, that wasn't the process that's been followed at the VA. Mayo Smith says the VA's approach in Manchester is bad for the system. If the VA keeps punishing people who follow its rules, Mayo Smith says the VA could have trouble finding really good leaders. Government policies don't make compelling villains, but heartless bureaucrats, we love to hate them. By removing four people from positions of power, the VA was able to give the perception that justice had been at least partly served. So where do things stand now? That's after a break. This is Word of Mouth. I'm Peter Biello. Today, we're looking at what's changed at the Manchester VA two years after whistleblowers came forward with allegations of bad care. Started tonight, so happy Monday night for those that know. My name is Al Montoya, or don't know. My name is Al Montoya, medical center director here at the Manchester VA. Super excited. Last month, the Manchester VA hosted a town hall meeting. If you want to learn about a particular VA's weak spot, this is where you go. The veterans who show up with complaints are not shy. At this town hall, 30-year-old Army veteran from Brookline, New Hampshire, Shaughnessy Madison, spoke up. I have. I've been coming here since 2011. I love it here. I tell all of my friends that are veterans that this is the place to go, um, with one exception. Today is the second day that I've walked in and needed to talk to a clinician, so mental health. So walked in and said, I don't have an appointment, but my medication doesn't feel like it's working appropriately and I would like to talk to someone. Madison gets choked up as she describes not being able to see a doctor. There's a screen at the front of the room showing a slide presentation, and she gestures toward it. Up here you have suicide prevention and improving patient experience. How is not having accessible, routine, and consistent mental health treatment an improvement? At this point, Al Montoya steps forward. He's the newly appointed director at the Manchester VA. Medical Center Director, and I think, you know, over this last year, we've been really focusing hard on veteran experience, and so it's through through your experience here that helps us move the Medical Center forward, and so right. um, I will tell, you know, all uh, employees or uh, veterans who are here, you know, at the end of the, the night, I'll give you out my cell phone number, just like I do in every case, because it's instances like that where you may run up into a barrier where I may, you know, I walk around this medical center a lot, and I'm always, always out there, always checking with veterans, but I may not see what you see, and that's where I need you guys to pick up the phone and call me. This kind of leadership, giving out your cell phone number, is not policy. 
There's no rule that says Montoya should step in and engage this way. It's a style thing, and people seem to like it. At one point, a woman spoke up to praise him. Two comments. A, Al's the best director that's ever been here. And he's done wonderful things to his place, and you can never let him go. Just, just saying. She didn't make a second comment, by the way. After the town hall, I caught up with her in the hallway. Her name is Leanne Carvalho, and her husband is a patient here. Well, um, what I've noticed, uh, as being the spouse of a uh, military veteran, is um, appointments are kept more timely. Um, my husband is given the time at the appointments to express his concerns and get the care he needs. Uh, on occasions, we need last-minute assistance. They've been very responsive and returning our calls and our, our emails. And it wasn't like that before? Uh, not, as, not as efficient. It wasn't as efficient. I, I just find that there's been more training, more um, behind-the-scenes push to and make the individuals at work here to be more sensitive to the needs of the veterans who come here. Be more sensitive. It's a kind of bedside manner, and it's hard to measure in a government report. Yeah, so it's going to be important to kind of get close, right? Because it's going to be a little bit noisy in here. Last year, Al Montoya gave me a tour of the changes made to the Manchester VA. He swipes his badge to unlock a room he refers to as the mechanical space. On the 19th of July, the flood came. It happened here. I actually was uh, woken up at about 4.30 in the morning um, by our administrative officer on duty to say, there's a lot of water coming in the building. You may want to come in. And so... I rushed over here uh, to really find that there was a lot of water. When the Manchester VA flooded in July 2017, Montoya had been on the job for only two days. That previous weekend, the Boston Globe published the whistleblower's allegations for the first time, and the VA moved him here from White River Junction, Vermont. Since the flood, the VA installed water sensors on the floor in the mechanical space in case another pipe bursts. The floors have been repaired, there's new drywall, and there's more. If you recall back in the Boston Globe article uh, where it mentioned that flies were coming into the OR and all of those things. Um, so we're, we're uh, working on some physical things to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, I think that for anyone to think that uh, when you're in an operating room, no insect is going to come in, uh, I, I think that's illogical, right? You have to have a process in place so when an insect does come in um, that you stop the line, right? You terminally clean the room and you do all of those things. If this argument about the flies sounds familiar, it's because it's the same one made by former Chief of Staff Jim Schlosser and former Network Director Michael Mayo-Smith. Montoya does have one thing his predecessors did not, more money. Some of that money is going toward major renovations. Montoya wouldn't say how much of that was attributable to whistleblowers, but he says they deserve some credit. I actually am uh, appreciative that they came forward and they brought up their concerns because it gave an opportunity for us to make these improvements, for us to really go out there and uh, invest in the organization, invest in the services. And so I think, you know, if uh, that had to come from them coming forward, then, then so be it. The disagreements between whistleblowers and administrators were rooted in conflicting visions for how patients should be cared for. Previous leaders kept citing the budget when they denied requests for things the whistleblowers thought they really needed. And Montoya says cost is still a factor. 
is we have to do the things like the cost uh, benefit analysis. We have to look at it as, you know, is there capacity in the community to be able to do it? Uh, is, you know, how much is it going to cost for us to do some kind of service like that here and take a very business-like approach to it? Um, this may be the federal government and we may have budgets that come in, but we still have to run this place like a business. So the VA's focus on the budget hasn't changed, but Montoya has more money than his predecessors. He's been able to hire more people and get help for a stretch thin staff. He's also working on implementing recommendations made by a task force that looked at the future of the Manchester VA, and those recommendations include some new services and strengthened partnerships. Other than that, keeping employees happy is more about style than substance. I called up lead whistleblower Ed Coyce to get his take on the Manchester VA now. He says his referrals get approved pretty easily now, and Montoya and other leaders seem to care about his concerns. And those metrics he complained about? Coyce had said that the Manchester VA was a four-star facility giving bad care. Is the Manchester VA currently relying on different, better metrics, metrics that you think are, are more reliable indicators of whether patients are getting good care? I think they use metrics, but under Saucer and Danielle, that was the only thing they used. So, so what else are they using? What else are they using now? Al comes out of his office. Al talks to people. Al listens to patients. If someone makes a complaint, Al fixes it. If I walked into Al's office and said, Al, something's broken, he said, I'll have someone come out today. That never used to happen. Given the changes that have occurred, it wasn't surprising to me that some patients, whistleblowers, and Al Montoya think the Manchester VA is better off now, but it surprised me that former Chief of Staff Jim Schlosser felt that way too. I think it is better off because there's been uh, a clearing of the air, there's been new funding and attention to the, to the work of the, VA, of the Manchester VA, uh, and the current leadership is really trying to continue the work of engaging staff, empowering staff, and building new programs that serve veterans. Schlosser says there are some policy changes that would help the VA as a whole address concerns. One is more budget flexibility. The VA gives each medical center money for specific things, administration costs, medical care, construction. All these are separate pots of money. Which can't be used very efficiently. They have to be kept separate and accounted for separately. And if one runs out, another one can't replenish it. You can't sort of move money where it's needed most. Schlosser also thinks the VA should be less political. It's good that the VA is accountable to the public, he says, but it's also susceptible to the whims of politicians. So you have the countervailing needs of a healthcare system, which needs thoughtful, long-term building of engagement with patients and staff and to develop the systems that will serve them the best. And the shorter cycle time and the more media-sensitive issues of politics. So how do you make the VA system a little less political? One source suggested to me the idea of taking the VA secretary out of the president's cabinet. They say it's hard to do your job when your boss's boss keeps changing. Taking the VA secretary out of the president's cabinet would give the VA more consistent leadership. And that is not unheard of. The postmaster general, for example, was taken out of the cabinet in the early 1970s.
And then there's the patients themselves. Army veteran Joseph Malouf, the guy with the back pain, said he didn't jump up and down to get his back taken care of. He says he could have spoken up and demanded more of the VA, but he didn't want to. I told Coys one time, you know, I'm not a service, I'm not a disabled veteran. Uh, I'm not uh, on medical, uh, I wasn't discharged medically, I wasn't a war hero. Uh, there's veterans that deserve it more than me. And I remember the first time that I said that to him, I don't feel deserving of it. And he said, you are deserving of it. This sentiment is actually pretty common. Some veterans think that real veterans saw combat. Outreach groups in the state of New Hampshire have worked to help veterans identify as veterans and take advantage of government services. So if vets want to get better care at the VA, it might start with them knowing that they're entitled to it. Because if the story of the Manchester VA tells us anything, it's that veterans can't sit by passively and hope they're getting everything that they need. They need to advocate for themselves. The hearing will come to order. Today's hearing of the oversight... In June, there was a hearing on VA whistleblower retaliation in Washington, D.C. The hearing was titled, Learning from VA Whistleblowers. Here's New Hampshire Congressman Chris Pappas at that hearing. Unfortunately, VA seems to have a culture problem. In some instances, VA leadership and supervisors have turned a blind eye to those in VA's workforce that have pointed out serious problems or attempted to expose bad actors that have abused their positions or broken laws. In even more concerning examples, VA leadership and supervisors have actively worked to stamp out these voices. At that hearing, Dr. Minu Agevli, a whistleblower from the Maryland VA system, spoke up about the retaliation she faced when she called out her VA's secret waiting lists in 2014. And since then, she's fought off several VA attempts to silence her. Since my privileges have been suspended for the last two months, I've been forbidden to talk to any patients or engage in patient care, and I've been assigned menial administrative tasks. In a situation that seemed chosen to be as stressful and publicly humiliating as possible. Agevli says VA administrators informed her in June she'd be removed from her job. And that came just a day after she told them she'd been invited to speak at this subcommittee hearing. This feels obviously retaliatory. But worse than that, I feel like I'm being used as a threat against other employees who might think about speaking up. I'm sorry. But Congressman Pappas says retaliation has not happened at the Manchester VA. This is good news that Dr. Coyce says he has not experienced retaliation as a result of speaking out. And I urge the VA to follow the path of New Hampshire's example when other whistleblowers express their concerns. Let's not be naive, however. Nobody's been accused of this kind of blatant retaliation at the Manchester VA recently, but some still fear it. Because of this fear, some whistleblowers no longer want to talk to me on the record. Things might be better now at the Manchester VA, but it's a development built on a shifting and temporary foundation. The Manchester VA's extra money will run out eventually. Al Montoya won't lead Manchester forever. And if Congressman Pappas is right, and the VA does have a culture problem, then the Manchester VA's future is more uncertain than we might want to acknowledge, given how good things seem to be right now. We wanted to leave the story there, 
but something else happened recently that we need to share with you. On Tuesday, July 23rd, Ed Coyce finished up at work and was driving home to Newburyport, Massachusetts. Police think some kind of medical event happened while he was driving, and he crashed. No one else was hurt. He was taken to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. He was 62 years old. He was the kind of person a person like me would take a bullet for. He was a patient's doctor. He was the doctor you wanted to have at the helm. On social media, tributes to Coyce popped up by the dozen. The Manchester VA's announcement about the accident included a picture of Coyce shaking hands with El Montoya. The VA did not make Montoya available for an interview. The Manchester VA would not be what it is today without Ed Coyce. And it's not a stretch to say that Coyce's legacy and the future of the Manchester VA are intertwined. So I asked Stuart Levinson about Coyce's legacy. Levinson is another whistleblower. He used to be Coyce's boss at the VA. He says Coyce's legacy is not a new policy or a better metric. He created the sense among VA leaders that metrics alone are not enough, and that leaders must be sensitive to patient needs and responsive to staff concerns, or else. So whatever happens, even if there's some drift back towards the complacency at the VA, they know now that because of people like Ed Coy's, that you can't ignore these deserving patients. Thanks for tuning in to Word of Mouth this week. This week's show was produced and reported by me, Peter Biello, with help from Erica Janik, Justine Paradise, Ben Henry, Jack Rodolico, Jimmy Gutierrez, and Daniela Ali. Erica Janik is our executive producer. You can find out more from Word of Mouth at our website, nhpr.org. Word of Mouth is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.